We were making video and uh, those people rushed at us with stones in their hands. Uh, we managed to get back in our cars. I think that at the time, there were two power centers giving orders to the police and national security committee, and they were totally different. Democracy is the last thing on their mind. Uh, all they want is um, returning to the status quo, thinking that through promise of changes, the public will be pacified. You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirov. In early January, Kazakhstan was rocked by a wave of protests. The demonstrations, mostly peaceful, started in the western city of Zhenauzien over rises in the price of liquefied petroleum gas that people used to warm their homes and power their cars. It soon became obvious that deeply rooted social and economic grievances with the regime could no longer be contained. Protests erupted all over Kazakhstan, and what began as peaceful calls to end inequality and change the regime were soon drowned out in the violence perpetuated by looters, agent provocateurs and law enforcement. The protests resulted in the death of at least 225 people, according to official reports. For today's episode, I spoke to three people to try and make sense of what happened in Kazakhstan. Dr. Erika Marat, Associate Professor of Regional and Analytical Studies at CISA, journalist Medina Alimkhanova of the Castag Media, and journalist and activist Lufkan Ahmedyarov. But first, let's talk about Kazakhstan. It's the largest economy in Central Asia, rich in oil and gas. It was ruled for 30 years by President Nursultan Nazarbayev, who was frequently criticized for suppressing his citizens' freedoms, crushing opposition, and appropriating the country's wealth for himself and his family. In 2019, he transferred power to his successor and ally, Kasim Jamar Tokayev, but retained his influence as the head of Security Council. Kazakhstan's capital, Astana, was renamed Nursultan, and Nazarbayev's family members continued to occupy key positions in business and government. They also acquired millions and millions of dollars worth of property all over the world. I asked Erika about what she made of the protests and how they were different from other forms of civil unrest in the region. So what we saw in Kazakhstan is, um, to a certain extent, was predictable that at some point we would see large uh, public mobilization against um, the deeply unpopular regime uh, led by Tokayev at this point. But no one expected that the protests would be so large and they would mobilize so quickly. Um, anything could have triggered this uh, level of collective action. Gas prices was just one trigger, but it could have been anything else. And uh, it just shows how the current regime um, that was still led by Nazarbayev. And at this point, we don't really know how much power he has. I don't want to speculate um, over Kazakhstan government that um, it created a system of um, economic inequalities that uh, the very few at the top benefited from uh, the resources of the land, whereas the rest had to be satisfied with uh, fewer opportunities, and especially in Western Kazakhstan. Um, what's fascinating, I think, about Kazakhstan, the mobilization in Kazakhstan, that it is different from any other mobilization that we see in the former Soviet space. Um, in Ukraine, it was different, and even in Belarus. And Belarus, even in Belarus, uh, there were uh, political opposition leaders who were able to rally people behind them. 
Kazakhstan had no such space uh, for political leaders to arise. So it was a leaderless collective action. Um, and uh, unlike Ukraine, there were no uh, powerful NGOs that um, instigated this, this mobilization. So it was really organic uh, uprising of uh, large parts of the population in Kazakhstan. At the times of the protest, Madina was reporting from Almaty. Here's what she told me. At first, everything looked quite peaceful. Though there were a lot of people, I have never seen such uh, crowded meetings. On the evening of January 4, uh, there were about maybe 5,000 people who gathered near Almaty Arena. It is in the lower part of the city, uh, quite far from the center and from the, about 10 kilometers from the uh, Square of Republic. Those people were really peaceful. Uh, they uh, didn't attack journalists, they didn't attack policemen, and uh, some activists tried to stop their uh, participants of the meeting if they uh, became even not, not aggressive. At the same time, uh, maybe about uh, one kilometer away from that place, another crowd gathered. There were about maybe 500 people, and uh, those people were aggressive. Well, but still, uh, there were no clashes between uh, uh, the participants of the uh, meeting and police. And even when they uh, later came at midnight at the Republic Square, uh, there still uh, every, everything was almost peaceful, except for the uh, protesters started to uh, crash and burn police cars. Though they didn't uh, uh, touch other cars or other uh, or buildings or uh, anything else, uh, on their uh, everything uh, turned upside down on on the day of January 5. Uh, there were crowds of uh, strange, aggressive people uh, who didn't have any mm, demands, any slogans. They were just carrying stones, sticks. They attacked uh, everyone who tried to make video. Since they tried to hide their faces, they didn't want uh, their faces to be uh, recorded on video or photo. And uh, those were uh, the people who later started to uh, crash everything, who burned uh, our mayor's office and uh, mm -hmm. residential residency, and who uh, crashed stores, uh, banks, and everything. While the events in Almaty took violent and tragic turn, the situation was quite different in Urals, a city in northwestern Kazakhstan. The protests were entirely peaceful in Urals. There was no physical clashes between the protesters and the police. But there were several things that I noticed. At the square, there is a town hall. Approximately at 8 p.m., I noticed a group of 20 to 30 young people in front of that building who appeared excited and emotional and acted in an aggressive manner, unlike other protesters. They were the first ones to shout, let's occupy the town hall. They tried to call in other protesters who had been there since lunchtime, but no one followed them. The other thing I noticed was that after the group of aggressive men appeared, the police cordon was taken away. And I remember that someone told me that the police organized in a line and walked off. 
I think that at the time, there were two power centers giving orders to the police and National Security Committee, and they were totally different. The orders were contradictory, which explains why, in my opinion, in Almaty, there was a group of well-prepared aggressive people that started the riots. It didn't work in Uralsk because this group of men couldn't convince other protesters to join them. It was the first time since 1991 when so many people in Uralsk came out on the streets to express their discontent. It was obvious that the people felt very inspired. Um, and what I found really uh, worrying is that uh, journalists actually became a target during the protests as well, as you mentioned before. And unfortunately, a cameraman for Almaty TV and his driver um, kill, were killed during the gunfire on 6th of January. How safe did you feel as a journalist over those last few days? On January uh, 5, uh, we were, me and my colleague Chopin were attacked by uh, one of, some of aggressive protesters. Uh, we were uh, making video of them uh, throwing stones into uh, uh, cars where trucks with uh, uh, soldiers. They couldn't even stop uh, since uh, a, a huge crowd with stones <laughs> and sticks attacked them and they had to drive away to save uh, the lives of uh, the soldiers. We were making video and uh, those people rushed at us with stones in their hands and they demanded to stop uh, making video. Uh, we managed to get back in our cars and uh, fortunately there were some normal participants of uh, the rally uh, who uh, gave us the opportunity to drive away from there while uh, those aggressive people tried to attack and break our car. That must have been terrifying. How, how did you feel? Uh, we were upset because we couldn't uh, work normally. Uh, we have never faced such a, a situation when uh, participants of any rally, any public event, uh, Adapt us. Usually, they call journalists to cover the mm -hmm. event, the help for everyone to know their demands, what what they're doing, what they want. And uh, he, uh, that day, everything was quite the opposite. We had to take off our uh, identification press vests because it was uh, really dangerous when they uh, when those aggressive people saw uh, a journalist, they attacked. Uh -huh. Although Lubkan mentioned that the protests in Uralsk were peaceful, he was arrested on 4th of January and accused of participating in illegal demonstration. I was relieved to hear that he wasn't mistreated in custody, unlike his colleagues in other cities. Another challenge that you faced as a reporter and, you know, as I'm sure a family member who has um, friends and family all over the country is the internet blackout. How did it impact your work and how did you get around it? There, uh, it was more difficult to get information than to mm -hmm. uh, pass it to uh, our editors. I used uh, uh, SMS messages, mobile phone, just phone calls uh, when a mobile connection was available. Uh, and it was uh, really hard to find information from officials. And uh, of course, I was worried that uh, if I see something really important, uh, how I will uh, tell about it. Internet blockade is a very dangerous tactic indeed. And it 
um, I, I'm not sure exactly what the goal was there because the protest, the looting, it carried on um, despite the lack of uh, internet connection. Um, as a journalist, how worried are you about this tactic being used? The most dangerous thing about it is that uh, when people are, uh, don't have access to official information, to any information, uh, they start to spread gossips. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they tend tend to believe everything they are told. So there were uh, a lot of really strange gossips uh, uh, those days, and people were scared. People uh, believed everything. Uh, their electricity will be cut off. Then they uh, said that uh, the terrorists captured uh, our water resources, and we will have no water. Every time they believed that. Now that the internet is back and the order has seemingly been restored, journalists, experts and ordinary citizens are all trying to make sense of what happened and whether any meaningful changes are going to happen in Kazakhstan. President Tokayev framed the protests as a terrorist plot and vowed to punish the organizers, but also promised to address economic inequality and prosecute corrupt individuals. Tokayev himself benefited from proximity to his former boss, although his property portfolio is not as impressive. Most of Nazarbayev's family have now fled the country, and one of his closest allies, ex-chief of intelligence Karim Masimov, has been arrested and charged with treason. President Tokayev's decision to invite the Collective Security Treaty Organization troops in order to tackle the protests was controversial. The troops have pulled back, but the president might have a lasting impact. Why do you think that happened? Because, well, there were previously other protests in Kazakhstan and um, it seems like the local security services and police forces were capable of, well, putting the protests down. Um, Why do you think there was this necessity to invite these foreign troops over? I think this is a result of the power struggle that took place uh, simultaneously as as the protests unfolded because it is still unclear and there has to be an independent investigation of um, who were those uh, groups of more aggressive members of the uh, of the crowds uh, that went to um, put fire uh, to to set um, government buildings on fire in Almaty and uh, to start to loot. There are many reports that it was a, some kind of organized group that probably was uh, directed, allegedly directed, by some of the members of the regime as the power struggle was unfolding at the top. And Tokayev probably felt that uh, he didn't have sufficient control over um, the members of the regime. That's one version. Another version is that Nazarbayev uh, spoke through Tokayev and ordered uh, CSTO troops to be deployed in Kazakhstan. But regardless whose idea it was, uh, Tokayev's or Nazarbayev's, um, it was an unimaginable and unprecedented scenario for Kazakhstan, which will have far-reaching political implications for the rest of the region and even Belarus and um, Armenia. Because what does that actually mean? Does that mean that uh, whenever uh, autocrats and member states feel threatened by um, crowds on the street, will they deploy regional militaries now against their own people? Um, so that uh, that is an unfortunate and scary scenario for um, civil society activists in uh, countries that supplied military contingents, including Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, Belarus. Talk about- 
The way in which the protests were suppressed, with the invitation of CSTO forces, communicates several messages addressed to various audiences. Inside Kazakhstan, the message being peddled by authorities is an explicit and clear demonization of protests, asserting that protests are bad and they lead to anarchy. There is another message that's very actively promoted by the Russian media and it seems to benefit Vladimir Putin. For Putin, it demonstrates that the CSTO is not a stillborn project, but a viable tool in his hand and sends a powerful message to the West. Last year in 2021, there were a lot of discussions about sanctions against the Kremlin due to increasing Russian military presence at the Ukrainian border and the expectation of military conflict. I think that it's very convenient for Putin to respond with the message that says, look guys, in two hours my planes can land anywhere in the CSTO zone and establish an order that works for me. And I think if anything, these protests just they show just how fragile these autocratic regimes can be uh, that are built on this notion of stability, um, etc. And um, do you think that there is a sense that if these root causes of inequality are not addressed, then there is a chance of another wave of protests in the future and that maybe a lot of people feel emboldened by what happened? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think uh, the popular grievances are going to be heard, or even if they're heard uh, by the regime, I don't think uh, there's going to be fundamental changes, because for fundamental changes to occur, the political system needs to open up, and it's in, it needs to become more transparent and more democratic, more inclusive, uh, and be able to hold uh, competitive elections um, so that, that there are debates um, and uh, underrepresented voices are heard. But the oligarchic elites don't want that. The, the democracy is the last thing on their mind. Uh, all they want is um, returning to the status quo, uh, trying to buy some more time, thinking that through uh, promise of changes uh, that the public will be pacified. And it's, a, it's really this ignorant and arrogant uh, attitude uh, by the rich towards own population that people who come on the streets, they just, they should know better. They don't have the right to mobilize. But yeah, the grievances aren't going to go anywhere and they will continue to expand. And again, because spontaneous protests are so difficult to predict when exactly they will erupt, erupt but they will, at some point they will. That's, uh, not, not, that's not a question of if, that's a question of when. Meanwhile, despite rumors and speculation, Nursultan Nazarbayev has made his first TV appearance since the protests began, claiming that he was having a rest. He claimed that there is no conflict or standoff in the elite. Rumors about this are absolutely unfounded. While we're working on this episode, one image stuck with me the most the luxurious mansion that belongs to Nazarbayev's son-in-law in Mayfair. Next to its posh, well-groomed neighbors, it looked abandoned and dilapidated, with dirty windows, blackened columns, and a sellotape letterbox. It looked like no one had stepped in there for years.